Na cigwanya mabagiti babas tiyum ganyama. From the day we arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun. There is more to be pod than can never be cast. More to do than can never be done. It's the podcast of life. <laughs> and it moves us all. <laughs> I had a much longer version where I not only did more of the opening bit, but I would talk about like we fought our place on the iTunes charts. It was way too much. <laughs> but yeah, we have to start our podcast the way that this movie starts, because yep. it's it's like the best way to start anything. It is a very good start. And I, I tried very hard to get, you know, the opening language right. Um, mm -hmm, and I probably mm -hmm. didn't. Unfortunately, the two times I've tried to do a podcast song in another language have been French <laughs> and then this sort of, I know it's not exactly, but uh, Swahili, uh, which happened to be two languages that my father speaks fluently. So I get to hear all about how I messed it up. So, Dad, <laughs> I encourage you, write into the mailbag, memommouse at gmail.com, uh, and tell us exactly what I got wrong so I can delete your email, old man. <laughs> Let's start the show. and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family and mispronouncing words from languages that aren't your own because you're a dumb American. <laughs> We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, <laughs> and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. And we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do making our podcast slimy yet satisfying. <laughs> this week on the program, we're continuing the Disney Renaissance era with 1994's The Lion King, little known movie directed by Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff. What does this movie mean to you, Mom? I love this movie. I love this movie. I love the music. It always felt like with the music, you know, a, almost a glimpse into another world. And yet it's just it's just so good. It's hard to think of specific things. I saw this movie in theaters when it first came out and loved it from the beginning. I remember when this this came out in 94, which is actually when I uh, the year I went to college first. And that's when I met your dad. And because I knew he knew Swahili, I was uh, asking him all the, you know, oh, so what does this person's name mean? You know, this character, what does Hakuna Matata mean? All that stuff. One of the conversations I remember having with him about this movie. Did we have this when you and you were growing up? I'm sorry. We did. We had the clamshell. So we watched this movie a lot when you were a kid, too. And uh, it's just a, it's just a really good one. It's definitely almost uh, a hard movie to talk about, much like Sleeping Beauty, because it is so good. And it's kind of so undeniably good. I was saying this to you while we were watching it last night. Yeah. Is that I think that's why with this one, people try to like gotcha it and be like, <laughs> you know, oh, do you know they actually stole that from Kimba the White Lion? Or, oh, you know, it's just Hamlet, right? Which both things we'll talk about, but... 
you know, because it's just so good and it was such a huge success that like people feel like they they got to take it down, right? They got to prove they're better than it. But it is so good. Yes. Uh, and, and I love this movie. I don't have a specific memory of when I first watched it. Yeah. Again, I know we had the clamshell. I remember the cover so distinctly. I was thinking about it today. It's basically, I think it's the circle of life. It's this blue cover. Yeah, I think so. And Rafiki's holding up Simba, but there's also like Mufasa's face in the back. Like, it's just, you know, all the famous imagery. But we definitely watched it. I was too young to see it in theaters, but... This one has grown for me over time. I've talked about how like with Aladdin, you know, I loved it the most as a kid and I've kind of started to enjoy it uh, less and less over time, even though I still like that movie a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I feel about a lot of the Renaissance era. But this one, I feel like I almost like it more every time I watch it. And I feel like, you know, we talk about the Renaissance era and we talk about the formula and we talk about how all these movies are kind of the same. And I think that like Disney movies at their best, when they really nail that, they become a genre in and of themselves and they become endlessly rewatchable. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think other than Brave Little Toaster, which is cheating (laughs) and Sleeping Beauty, this is my third favorite film we've seen. Here's my complete list of complaints. All right. Number one. Not all the Timon and Pumbaa jokes work for me, especially the ones where they're doing pop culture references. It feels a little dated. (laughs) Two, the slow motion in the final fight with Scar and Simba is weird. Yep. That's it. Other than that, I think this is basically a perfect movie. And basically, I would only say the... uh... The slow motion thing as well. That felt weird from the first time I saw it. I'm like, why are we having a slow motion moment? Because we can. I don't know. (laughs) But it's it's an incredible picture. And this is if any Disney movie was going to win the Best Picture Academy Award, which will probably never happen until uh, Disney just buys the Oscars, (laughs) which they kind of have. It's ABC. This is the one I would pick. Honestly, because there's like the the only movie I like more than this in 1994 is a Chinese movie. <laughs> uh, so as far as American film goes, I think this is the best of its year. It's a great movie. And yet you would not think that it would have been so great based on its production, which was incredibly troubled. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into it. The main thing you need to know about The Lion King, in my opinion, is that it was being developed at the same time as Pocahontas and Pocahontas, which we will talk about. Unfortunately, (laughs) the episode you and I are looking forward to the least, the least rather. Pocahontas is the one that was very much seen as the A picture. It was the one that was going to finally get them that best picture nomination. It was their big prestige movie. Yeah, they had to beg like the good animators to come from that movie and do a little bit of work on this one. Yeah. Because everybody wanted to sign up on Pocahontas. You know, this, again, was seen as the B movie. Like, okay, we want to get something out every year. This will be kind of the lesser effort we put out. And of course, in terms of prestige, cultural staying power, most importantly, money, goodness, (laughs) not being questionably racial politics. uh, This is, of course, the far, far superior movie. Much like when they were like, Oliver and Company is going to be the big Huge hit. And okay, sure, you guys can make this weird little mermaid thing. (laughs) Yep. I did see a, uh, I was watching some of the special features that are on my Blu-ray. 
um, of this movie. And uh, they were talking about how the animators were having like a reunion several years later. Right. And they were talking about how they felt like maybe they had a chip on their shoulder that, you know, well, we're working on the lion King and everybody says it's, you know, the lesser movie. And so they felt like they worked harder because they wanted, they had more to prove our movie's good too. And then it was actually your movie is better. <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I mean, again, with like, Great Mouse Detective and Black Cauldron, Little Mermaid and Oliver and Company. Having fewer resources forces the animators and the storytellers to like really be better. And the other thing, of course, is that the less time the executives at Disney spend working on a movie, the better it is. Kind of. This was another one they had to rush through still, it feels like mm-hmm. not completely rushed, but and nobody thought it was going to be a good movie is the most interesting thing. Yeah. By the way, we're going to, as always, give a very condensed version of this history, but even more so in this case, because there's so much like, you know, during the bronze era, I felt pretty good if we found one good article about a thing here. There's like three <laughs> oral histories and several like documentations and hours and hours and hours of video that we both watched, like of different videos. I mean, there's just it's it, it's insane. So, you know, obviously we're giving a very condensed version. So with the oral histories, though, it's so funny because they were like, yeah, we all thought this was garbage. Like everyone, (laughs) nobody working on it seemed to think it would really work until like basically right before it got released. You know, the first test screenings where it's like, huh, people seem to like this movie. That's interesting. (laughs) I mean, everyone was trying their best, but everybody was like, this is just a disaster. Like there's no way this comes together. And of course, once the once the famous trailer released, that's just the right. The opening scene, the Circle of Life song. But as the story goes, this idea was conceived in 1988 uh, when Jeffrey Katzenberg, Roy E. Disney and Peter Schneider, three guys we've talked about a lot, plus some other executives, I believe, were on a plane to Europe on basically the press tour for Oliver and Company. And they started talking about what movies they would want to make next. Essentially, the idea of a movie in Africa came up and Katzenberg got excited about it. Everyone seems to agree that that's the case. The exact involvement of... ...is disputed somewhat. And in fact, that is a very important part of this movie's history because Katzenberg loves taking credit for this movie taking credit for every part of it. He claimed at various points that it was inspired by his childhood and his experiences in politics and, you know, his coming of age story because he had it so hard as a rich jerk, you know. (laughs) But it does seem like it, it started on that plane. It was the executive's idea and it was marketed and is occasionally talked about as Disney's first fully original film that was not based on a prior story or book, yep. which is basically true. I mean, it de- it depends how you define certain things, yeah. but I mean, inspired by several things, right? Because, you know, it's inspired by Hamlet, but it's not really they're just doing Hamlet with animals. <laughs> yes, it actually started as let's do Bambi in Africa. Yep. Bambi in Africa was the original pitch and sort of what they were unofficially calling it behind the scenes. Yeah. Coming of age in Africa. (laughs) Yep. So Thomas Deesh, author of the book, The Brave Little Toaster, 
actually wrote the first uh, version of the screenplay. I've read that version of the screenplay other than being about lions in Africa. No similarity to the finished movie. (laughs) Went through several other versions. Eventually, the director of Oliver and Company, the surviving director of Oliver and Company, George Scribner, came on to be the director of the film. And his version was described as quote, an animated National Geographic special. It was much more trying to emulate the photorealistic look of Bambi. Yeah. And be more about, like, real animals, you know, maybe kind of Fox and the Houndy as well. But it wasn't really coming together. There wasn't really a story. They, like, had basically it's a lion and he leaves his home and then he comes back to it. They they described it as, like, a Moses story. But there wasn't really a plot. Yeah. And so there was basically this meeting where Scribner gets removed because his version of the film isn't working. Yep. Um, and I believe that was basically the end of Scribner working for Disney. I mean, he did a few other small things, but he's not directing a movie again. And he was not getting along with anyone. He especially did not want it to be musical. But of course, the execs, you know, we're in a post Little Mermaid world. In fact, by this point, we're in a post Beauty and the Beast world. So everything's a musical. Yeah. Several other people come on to the film. Roger Allers had been assigned as a co-director. He stays on. Rob Minkoff replaces Scribner. Um, There's also Don Hahn, the producer and Disney historian. And eventually Allers, Minkoff, Brenda Chapman, who became head of story on the movie, who would go on to be the first woman to direct an animated feature uh, in America from a major studio, which was Prince of Egypt. Then she would come back to Disney with Brave, where she would get uh, completely mistreated and taken off her own movie by John Lasseter, a great guy who never did anything wrong. (laughs) So... So she's a very important, underrated person in Disney. So Allers, Minkoff, Chapman and Han spent two weeks of meetings with Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, the directors of Beauty and the Beast and other movies that we will talk about. Uh, And we talked about how cool they were on the Beauty and the Beast episode. They basically spent two weeks really uh, reworking the whole story and coming up with pretty much all of the best elements of the final movie, all of the iconic scenes. uh, It sounds like basically came from funnily enough, as they now tell it one meeting in that two weeks is when they figured out like Mufasa's head in the clouds, Scar kills Mufasa (laughs) and their brothers. Like they just every, every moment they then pitched this to uh, Eisner and the devil, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And they talked about it and, I believe it was in that pitch meeting, maybe another meeting where somebody in the room said, oh, this is like Hamlet. And that kind of like immediately vibed with everyone. They were like, oh, yeah, (laughs) it is. And then they more intentionally made it into Hamlet. So this is again, people try to like own this movie by being like, "Uh, you know, it's just Hamlet. First of all. Every story in the English language almost is derived from Shakespeare. Like he invented (laughs) English language storytelling. So every story is Hamlet. But second of all, yeah, they were very upfront with that. Like you even watch marketing material from the time and they're like, it's Hamlet with lions. Like, yes, that is the premise of the movie. That's not... You, you didn't own anything. It's not a secret you figured out. Yeah. And another moment they talk about as being important to crystallizing the movie 
was when so now it's a musical. Mencken is working on Pocahontas, but Tim Rice of Aladdin comes and works on this. And Rice really wants to bring on Elton John. Elton John, of course, the way he worked was he would always have lyrics written for him and then he would put them to music. So that's what he did with his buddy Tim Rice. And there was this famous trip to Africa that all the animators took to study actual African animals. And that's where they heard, apparently, one of their guides singing the Asante San, a squash banana song that goes (laughs) in the movie. It's also where they heard the phrase Hakuna Matata that went into the movie. So they're working on the music. They're working with Hans Zimmer. This was the movie that really put Zimmer on the map. And they work with several African musicians who were mostly brought on by Hans Zimmer. And they put together the song Circle of Life was, I think, really the first song that was finished in the version it appears in the film. And apparently when the animators and the directors heard Circle of Life, they were like, oh, (laughs) we really have to step up our game to put together a scene that is worthy of this song. And obviously they did. And that really helped set the tone of the entire movie and kind of helped clarify for everyone what it was they were working on. So again, they went through several different versions, several different iterations. There's all the, you know, stuff about the executives as always having terrible suggestions for things. There's a very funny story where Katzenberg was calling Elton John almost every day. So as the story was told in Disney War, quote, Finally, Elton John called Thomas Schumacher. Make him stop calling, he begged. So (laughs) Schumacher called Katzenberg. Too many people are calling Elton, he said. Great, Katzenberg responded. We'll limit calls to just you and me. He'd rather you not call. (laughs) Oh, there was a brief silence. You mean just you? (laughs) So funny, Elton John was like, you know, I'm getting too many calls from Katzenberg. Katzenberg's like, all right, nobody but me gets to call. (laughs) And many people worked on this movie who will become very important in later movies. We talked about Brendan Chapman. We should also acknowledge Chris Sanders, the production designer for this movie, who would go on to write and direct uh, a couple movies. Uh, he had this weird passion project. He was starting to write while he was working on The Lion King about an alien dog named Stitch uh, <laughs> that obviously never went anywhere. Uh, and he would later go on to do How to Train Your Dragon as well. All righty. He's a, he's a really good, again, I think somewhat underappreciated guy, Chris Sanders. Yeah, they they kept working on it. There's a lot of great animators working on this thing. Andreas Deja. I think it's actually Deja. At least that's what they how they pronounce it on that special feature I watched. There you go. Well, I assume that's right. And I've been saying it wrong. Deja served as the supervising animator for Scar. We've talked about him a lot. Yep. Uh, apparently with the wrong pronunciation of his name. He also had just gotten done with Jafar. And that's why with his next project that he was on Hercules, he was like, I'm sick of doing villains. And I believe he's the lead animator for Hercules on that movie, but we'll get to it. But he was like, I'm not doing another bad guy. <laughs> yeah. And then the movie kind of came together despite the rushed production and all the competing visions. And somehow it's a very good movie. It is. It made so much money. It was the highest grossing Disney film beating Aladdin's record. And it would not be beaten again 
until Frozen. Yeah, pretty crazy. For the Disney animated canon, there was, of course, Finding Nemo in between the two, but that's Pixar. Of of official Disney animated canon, you have to wait till Frozen. (laughs) And it was hugely successful, and it led to a ton of sequels and spinoffs and, uh, you know, some other stuff that I'm sure will get there. (laughs) Mom, do you want to take us through the amazing, incredible stacked cast for this movie? It's hard to know where to start. So Rowan Atkinson plays Zazu. And here's a funny thing. I never really put together until just recently that it was Rowan Atkinson as Zazu. Because when I first saw this movie, I didn't know who Rowan Atkinson was. Right. To Americans, he's just Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean. He's Blackadder. He's in, uh, you know, those Johnny English movies, which are so funny. But of course, none of most of the like the Johnny English, of course, hadn't happened yet. But I had not seen Mr. Bean. I didn't know anything about him. And so when I then later watched Mr. Bean and everything, I didn't put it together that this guy's voice is the same as Zazu. So it wasn't until much more recently that it suddenly hit me and I was like, Oh, (laughs) that's funny. I felt like I've known that for a while, but I guess I grew up with a lot of that stuff. And that's the thing. You grew up with those things and I didn't. Right. Um, I recently rewatched all of Blackadder, which is to say seasons two, three, four and the specials with my girlfriend. And it is funny how much Zazu in this is kind of like Blackadder in that, you know, it's kind of a sniveling the character, self-interested character who is adjacent to royalty, yep. um, but doesn't have much power himself. Uh, Rowan Atkinson, one of my absolute favorite comedians, one of the greatest physical comedians of all time. It's it's a little disappointing to me that Americans, by and large, only know him for Mr. Bean, as much as Mr. Bean is a lot of fun because he's capable of so much more. He does great stand up. It's true. He's just one of my absolute favorites, and I I do love him. As Zazu, there's not a lot of him, but he's so funny and it wouldn't have been quite as funny with anyone else. Matthew Broderick plays adult Simba and he is in a ton of things. (laughs) This one strikes me a little bit as and of course, the fact that this is such a celebrity cast, that's Katzenberg. You know, we've talked ad nauseum. Um, Matthew Broderick is one of the ones that definitely strikes me a little bit as stunt casting. His performance isn't bad. In fact, it's pretty good, but it's like. You know, he, he's not doing a lot. Adult Simba is he doesn't talk as much and, you know, but he's he's goodness. He is. Um, I'm going to put the three hyenas together. So we've got Whoopi Goldberg as Shenzi. And of course, Whoopi Goldberg, an amazing <laughs> actress. Had recently won an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny because, you know, to skip ahead a moment, the Cheech Marin, of course, is Bonsai. Yes. And they were wanted to get Cheech and Chong, but Chong wasn't available. So they were like, who should we replace Tommy Chong with? Academy Award winner Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> I saw something that said that she was really wanting to be in this movie. Like she'd heard about it or, you know, her agent or something. And she was like, I don't care. Give me a role. <laughs> That's correct. And she's really committed. They they both are. It's a surprisingly good pairing. It is. And then Jim Cummings does Ed, um, the the stupid hyena who just laughs. And Cummings talks about one of the oral histories. Cummings, by the way, 
is just like willing to he says so much in the oral histories like he clearly has no fear of the Disney Corporation. They can't do literally any of their TV shows without him. (laughs) So he's very funny. But he talks about they got Frank Welker for Ed originally because duh. And Welker was like, I they're not liking my performance at all. They want like a Tasmanian devil type thing. (laughs) And obviously Welker's more doing like real animal noises, not cartoony animal noises. And Jim Cummings at the time and possibly still now, I'm not sure, but at the time was the official voice of the Tasmanian devil. Oh, that's funny. That makes sense. He does Ed. It's not exactly the same, but uh, clearly he he was the right fit. I mean, Frank Welker do- is in this movie doing lion roars and probably the other hyena la- giggles and wildebeest sounds and... Yeah. Yeah, he's doing all kinds of sounds. And Jim Cummings also does several other sounds. So, you know, they, they, everybody's getting paid. Don't worry about, do not worry about Frank Welker's baby <laughs> Robert, is it William? I don't know how to say his last name. I think so. Close enough. I mean, he's, he's born here in Missouri. So I don't know if they pronounce it like the actual French way. He does Rafiki and he is another actor who'd done a lot of stuff. He was in a TV show called Benson, where he played the title character. That was a very popular show. Won two Emmy Awards for that role. Yeah. My fellow video game fans might know him as Eli Vance in the Half-Life 2 series. Ah. Then we have Jeremy Irons as Scar, who is just perfect for this role. (laughs) What can you say? I mean, he is the best villain. He's the best villain. In any movie where he's playing a villain... You can at least walk out going, well, he was a great villain. (laughs) And he's so perfect in this. He's probably the best voice performance, in my opinion. Just so delicious. Just (laughs) savoring every line like it's a delicious four course meal. Um, And he also had just recently won an Academy Award uh, for a very strange movie about hero lawyer Alan Dershowitz, who we now know is a profoundly bad person. But yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we have James Earl Jones as Mufasa, the great Darth Vader voice himself. Yeah, I mean, obvious casting because, like, as they put it, like, his voice just sounds like a lion roar. It's perfect. So good that even when they did the Delarm that we'll talk about, the Disney live-action animated remake, for those not in the know, they had to keep James Earl Jones because nobody else can can do Mufasa. Nobody else can with, like, just his first line bring that level of gravitas to the role and just be the king. Exactly. Then we have, let's see, Moira Kelly as Nala, adult Nala voice. She was also in that in Twin Peaks that you like. Yes, she is, except only in the movie. She plays Donna, who is recast for the movie Fire Walk With Me. Frankly, my preferred performance of the character. And then we have Nathan Lane as Timon and Ernie Sabella as Pumbaa. So I got to tell the story of this. Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella are both probably best known as Broadway actors. I mean, Nathan Lane has also had a very successful movie career, but they were both in a Broadway production of Guys and Dolls at the time. And there's various versions of this story. The one that I read was Nathan Lane came into audition and he invited Ernie Sabella to come with him. Saw another version that said they were auditioning for different parts, but they ended up auditioning for the hyenas together. 
Nathan Lane was like, hey, my buddy Ernie Sabella is waiting outside. Can I bring him in and can we like do bits? They started riffing uh, and just doing jokes like with each other. They were both told like, "Okay, you guys have to leave now. Sabella was saying to Lane like, oh, I'm so sorry. I cost you the part, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because we just started goofing around. And instead, they find out later the casting directors liked them so much and thought their bits were so funny that they created new characters for them. These parts were written for them. I mean, they had like a version of a a few meerkats and a warthog kicking around, I believe. But they were like, "Okay, we're clarifying it. These guys are the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, <laughs> and they just kind of let them be Nathan Lane and, and Ernie Sabella, which, you know, the fact that they were real life friends definitely, I think, helps their their chemistry in the movie. It does. They have so much. And they actually got to uh, record their lines together. Most of the time, of course, with voice actors recording, they just come in on their own and record their lines by themselves. But these two guys, they had them record together because that's their chemistry. I love Nathan Lane. I I mean, I couldn't possibly pick a favorite performance of his, but he's so funny that one of the ones I always think of is his one scene cameo in Adam's Family Values where he just goes, what are you? Who are you? Who lifted the rock? <laughs> the other one I wanted to talk about, well, I suppose both young Nala is voiced by Nikita Kalame, which... It's a choice that would not be made now that Nala starts off played by a black girl and then grows into an Irish woman. <laughs> um, and Jonathan Taylor Thomas voices young Simba. Jonathan Taylor Thomas, best known, especially at this time, for being the kid in Home Improvement. Right. He was very he was a very popular child actor at the time. Exactly. If you're trying to cast a big name kid, especially one that owes a debt to Disney, he's the guy. And the interesting thing is so. Almost every character who sings in this movie has a singing voice. Yeah. Uh, The weirdest conceptually being Scar, where the song is done in different parts by Jeremy Irons and Jim Cummings. But and this was a big Katzenberg thing. He was like, actors act, singers sing. They should never be, which is very strange. The main exceptions are uh, Lane and Sabella, because, again, they were literally on Broadway. The voice of young Simba, the, you know, just can't wait to be king, is sung by Jason Weaver. And that's the guy who all of the animators and like the casting director, basically, you know, the the as we talked about uh, in a previous episode, the first floor, <laughs> they all wanted Jason Weaver to be the role. And it was unsurprisingly Katzenberg who was like, no, we have to get no name. And that means we have to get Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Everyone else wanted Jason Weaver, who sings the song so well that I think it would have been interesting to see him be the spoken voice of the character as well. But Jonathan Taylor Thomas is very good. I I don't really have any complaints with this cast at all. Yep. Shall we get into the film? Yeah, we can do that. All right. How does this movie start again? All right. (laughs) Right off the bat, this is my favorite scene in the movie. It's an amazing scene. I think it is the best any Disney movie starts. It's it's the same basic idea as like the Star Wars opening where you have that pause of silence that gets you so excited. You see the sun starting to rise and then it's just the wall of sound. And 
you know, there's so many great shots in this. I was saying to you, you know, with Rescuers Down Under, they're really using the cap system to its fullest because that was kind of a tech demo. Yeah. Aladdin is animated in caps, but I feel like they don't have as many crazy camera movements. You rightly pointed out that the one big exception is when they're escaping the Cave of Wonders on carpet. But it's not like constantly, you know, oh, look at all the focuses we could do in the camera movements. I think this movie combines the level of like interesting use of caps of Rescuers Down Under with, frankly, a a far superior story. I mean, I like Rescuers Down Under, but let's let's not let's be serious. (laughs) And I think this opening sequence is some of the best use of it. I mean, one of the most famous moments, I think. Uh, among animation nerds is when there is the fake rack focus, which we talked about a lot of rescuers down under from the ants to the zebras, which is showing that everyone's here in two ways. One, it's going from a small thing to a big thing. And two, it's A to Z, ants to zebra. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's so much great visual storytelling here. I love that we're introduced to the characters with them not talking yet. Yeah, very interesting. It is very interesting and you feel the power of this moment and like obviously Rafiki lifting Simba, which they show, you know, three different times like it's a a Jackie Chan editing movie. (laughs) It's so cool. And like the caps tracking shot from Zazu flying to Mufasa for the first time we see Mufasa. I mean, it's just and then the song is so good and it ends with that drum hit and boom, Lion King text, the Lion King, black background. Even now, it's still a powerful opening. Like I say, I think it's the best opening to a Disney movie. It's pretty incredible. And it worked great as a trailer, too. Yeah, of course. Mm. If you saw this, you'd be like, of course I'm going to see that movie. Oh, it's it's just I love it. I love it so much. I mean, there's a ton of scenes in this movie I love, obviously. But to me, that is the Lion King. I mean, it, it, you could just cut it there like the trailer does. And you're like, wow, what an incredible short film, like Academy Award (laughs) best short film, the Lion King trailer. There you go. Then we go into where we're actually meeting some of the characters and we start with Scar. Really interesting and effective to have Scar be the first character we hear talking. And I think it's good because like after again, that non vocal intro, Anyone who talks is going to be kind of a disappointment. And to hear Scar like, oh, talking to a mouse and kind of joking about how life's not fair. It's like it is jarring. It's like Scar has broken the the beauty of the circle of life opening number. Yeah. And we get a lot of funny stuff, of course, with him and Zazu. Which, of course, now that I know it's Rowan Atkinson, it's different. (laughs) And Mufasa, of course, comes and is complaining, why wasn't Scar at the ceremony? There's a whole, you can tell there's a lot of tension between these two brothers. I just love listening to them talk, though. Both of their voices are so great. <laughs> it's true, and Zazu as well. It's like, I just, yeah, just just live in that. And yeah, this sets it all up very nicely. Then we have time passing with the rains, which is very, very Bambi. A very beautiful scene as well. And we get to see Rafiki and his tree, you know, making a little Simba design. I love how long it takes to get to Rafiki. It's a level of restraint a lot of Disney movies don't have, where it's like, okay, we have this really good character. We're going to spend the whole movie setting him up. And then he's going to basically have one big like showcase and then he's gone. And up to this point, Mufasa has been, as I described when we were watching him, 
he's felt like a god, right? Like not even just a king, but you know, he's deep voiced. He's always noble and righteous. He's so huge and cool. But we get a little humanizing moment as Simba is waking him up. And, you know, we have the funny parent banter of like, before noon, he's your son. No, it's before sunrise. Before sunrise, he's your son. (laughs) Which is something that James Earl Jones talked about. He said that because he had to come in for like so many recording sessions as the script kept changing. And he said that Mufasa changed from a king to, in his words, a dopey dad. (laughs) Yeah, apparently they changed the script so many times they kept having to reanimate scenes, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Total nightmare. Hell to work on. (laughs) So then we have basically some king lessons with Simba and Mufasa. So many famous lines, of course. Just talk about everything the light touches is ours, except for that one shadowy place. You must never go there. And... This is where the Hans Zimmer score really gets to shine for the first time, in my opinion. I mean, I know it's throughout and it is such a great score. Perfect incorporation of the African instruments with more typical, you know, Western cinema sounds. It really is an impressive piece of work. Hans Zimmer at his best is one of the greatest movie composers. He's not always at his best, especially these days where a lot of scores written quote unquote by Hans Zimmer are written by like his assistants and maybe he did one theme. But this reminds you of like why he became an industry unto himself. (laughs) We eat the antelope, the antelope eat the grass. Zazu comes up and starts doing a ton of hilarious puns, which is his report. Yes, the morning report. Very, very funny. Sometimes it's like, I just want to hear what the horrible things he's saying because they're so terrible, such terrible puns. And of course, he delivers them with a perfectly straight face. Worth watching with the subtitles on just to catch all of this stuff. And so then they have the, the brief pouncing lesson where Simba pounces on Zazu. And then Mufasa has to go and chase the hyenas out of the Pride Lands. Another pun as this mole voiced by Jim Cummings delivers news from the underground. I forgot to mention, we we should have had our first mom status already. Mom status. Alive. (laughs) Alive for the whole movie. Amazing. It's kind of amazing that Simba starts with both parents. Is this the first? I mean, Bambi had both parents too. Not for long, baby. (laughs) Well, same with Simba. (laughs) Sleeping Beauty has both parents for the entire movie. It's true. She does. There you go. Not that she knows it. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, yes. Mom's status. Fine. Totally fine. Doing well. Got to sleep in. Yep. While they go off and have a boy's morning. She's like, oh, yeah. So Mufasa runs off for the hyenas. Simba is bothering Scar. And Simba, you know, they thread the line very well where he's obviously very self-centered and he doesn't understand what it means to be a king. But he's still likably so. Like, you're like, okay, yeah, he's a kid. He's a dumb kid, but he's a kid. I'm not annoyed by him, but Scar tricks him into going to the shadowy place, which we are told is an elephant graveyard. Because Scar is very manipulative. He is very much into using his wits and his brain to get what he wants because he doesn't have the physical strength, as he says. And this movie is so well written. It feels very natural for something that's completely fantastical and, you know, literally not about humans. Mm hmm. They're they're humans. They're just 
animals. And it does such an excellent job with setup payoff, which I think about here as we are introduced to Nala, which again just feels very natural of like, oh, Simba's got a little friend. That's nice. She's not like particularly a funny character or comedic relief. We're just kind of introduced her. And this again, this movie has the confidence to be like, we're going to introduce this character She's going to be around for a bit, not super important in any way. And then an hour from now, you're still going to remember and care about her. Obviously, this is not the you know most complex script in the world. It is a pretty straightforward adaptation of a story everyone knows in Hamlet. But like, it's so good, again, for a Disney film especially, there is a subtlety to it that a lot of these movies don't have, even the good ones. So, of course, Simba convinces Nala to go with him to uh, a great place I can't mention out loud in front of our mothers. <laughs> and Sarabi, no fool, is like, uh-huh, uh-huh, Zazu. You get Zazu'd. As long as Zazu goes with you. Aw, man. You must experience lame chaperone. <laughs> Once again, by the way, Sarabi still gets to stay at home, still just gets to chill, do whatever she wants. She is a lioness. She probably has to go out and do the hunting. yeah. And then we get our first song sung by the characters. Just can't wait to be king. I love all the songs in this. I'm a big fan of of Elton John in general. I'm glad he's kind of having a career renaissance with like Rocket Man and everything, which is a good movie, by the way. A little underrated, in my opinion. Good movie. I, I love every song in this. There is not a single song I do not like. And this one's a ton of fun. The colors are so crazy. Yeah, I love how it changes colors. Basically, it's like we're in Simba's imagination land kind of because he's talking about what he thinks it's going to be like to be king which is of course not really what being king is all about but he's a child he doesn't understand and i I love how we get the weird colors every you know basic the big musical production number right the giant animal stack (laughs) yes at the end that then goes unbalanced. I am so happy that the directors, Allers and Minkoff, decided to move away from Scribner's super photorealistic version and make this movie surreal. Because it is, I think, even more than a lot of the other Renaissance era films, like it does have a surrealist quality to it where, again, you know, we're singing a song. It's crazy colors. It's non-literal, you know, interpretations of what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, later, like the sky and the everything always changes with the mood. The geography of the land itself and the textures everything is made out of changes with the mood of the movie, which is such a good way to do visual storytelling and something I so desperately miss in modern Disney animated movies that are so literal. And then Zazu gets crushed by a Disney butt joke. Yep, he gets sat on by a rhino. Which we were watching this with dad last night and he pointed out that the they all fall down the giant animal stack. As you said, things are becoming unbalanced, which is Mufasa's whole thing is everything is in balance, but things are starting to become unbalanced again. There is such subtlety in this. There are new things to notice every time you watch it, even though it's a relatively simple story. So good. And then we set up here that uh, as Nala and Simba get away, that when they, uh, even when they were just play fighting, Nala can pin Simba every single time. Yes. And then they get to the elephant graveyard and they're like, oh, so cool. But then the hyenas show up. (laughs) And this is also a good example of what I was talking about, where like they walked here. It's not that far. It's presumably still day. But, you know, now it's foggy and creepy and Halloween-y and like, 
How can this place possibly be adjacent to the Pride Lands? Doesn't matter. You are understanding that it's creepy. You don't need to literally think about it. Yep, yep. The hyenas, I, I like these characters a lot. One thing I really like here is that their jokes aren't funny. Um, there's stupid jokes that they're making, but that actually works because like you're not really supposed to be laughing here. You're supposed to be uncomfortable later when they are being more comic relief for more serious moments. Their jokes actually are funnier. Again, it's very well written in that regard. It always understands what emotion you should be feeling, which is something I complained about a lot in the bronze era is that, you know, is, are we experiencing seriousness or are we experiencing silliness? This movie has wild extremes on both ends and yet does both super well it does so then of course the hyenas are chasing them they do catch zazu and they are putting him in the birdie boiler because <laughs> not the birdie boiler <laughs> this elephant graveyard area is also got a lot of like geysers and stuff speaking of unstable landscape Yep. Simba scratches a hyena and I, I believe he scratches Banzai and there's actually real blood, which is kind of a sign that like, hey, this movie's going to go some places. There's actual consequences in this one. He does his weak, lame little roar, which, you know, will pay off at the very end of the movie. And Mufasa comes to the rescue. And again, the score sells this whole fight sequence along with the animation. And of course, he manages to chase them off. And Scar, we see, is watching secretly. Nobody noticed that he is there. And this is one of my favorite scenes right after this. I feel like when Mufasa is, you know, he's scolding Simba. It's like, this is exactly right. This is so much better than, you know, this was my, one of my problems with Little Mermaid was I'm like, I'm never really not on King Triton's side. And, you know, he's just <laughs> always scolding. I feel like a lot of Disney parents are defined solely by like scolding their kids. Yeah, this is so perfectly balanced where he's like, I'm very disappointed in you. You put Nala in danger. You put yourself in danger. I was scared for your life. But, you know, it's balanced with I just wrote down like, these characters love each other so much and you feel it, man. You feel it, which is important because otherwise you you wouldn't care at all about what happens next. Even just the silly thing of like, because nobody messes with your dad. Like it's a it's a dad joke. It's a lame dad thing to say. It is. But of course, Simba at this age is like, yes, my dad is the coolest thing that's ever happened. So I just love how this scene goes over so many things. First, you start off with Simba being in trouble, and then you kind of have a little father-son playtime, and then you have that more serious moment where they talk about the stars being the kings of the past looking down on them because Simba asks, you know, we'll be together forever, right? And, you know, Mufasa's like, um, you know, that's not how life works. <laughs> but without saying it. Right. So you go through quite a few emotions in that short scene. And then we get back to the hyenas who are complaining about dangling at the bottom of the food chain. The great quotable line. I don't know how many times I've said, man, I hate dangling. And then we find out that Scar is their friend and has actually been feeding them. And he was hoping for them to kill the cubs. And they're like, well, what do you want us to do? Kill Mufasa? And he's like, yes. 
Scar in the hyena's lair is in hell, a green hell. But again, it's like this is not a literal location. And at the end of the song, it explodes for no reason, which is fun. It's it is. colorful. And it's cool. And it actually goes from green to yellow to red again to emphasize different emotions during the song, which what is this place? Doesn't matter. I love this song. Be prepared. I know it's a villain song, but I have always loved this song even more than Circle of Life. I mean, I love that one, too, but it's it's like a very close neck and neck. Ever since I first saw this movie, I have loved this song. I won't fight you on any song in this movie being your favorite. Literally, like, (laughs) I think you could pick any of them. Yeah. Yes, of course. Incredible villain song performed so well by Jim Cummings and... Jeremy Irons. You cannot tell when it's one or the other. I really can't. No. Everything I saw said it's Jim Cummings doing like the last few lines. And I was listening and I'm like, sounds like the same guy to me all the way through. Obviously, Jim Cummings is very good at imitating people singing. So is this your favorite scene or just your favorite song? I will say it's my favorite scene because it's my favorite song. It's a hard pick. I mean, it's my favorite song for sure. And I love the scene because of it. Um, I love all the silly things that go on during the song, you know, like you said, with the the geysers all exploding and um, even the ridiculousness of um, them imitating like Hitler and the soldiers walking past. Well, again, just clear visual language like. Oh, yeah. But yes, the hyena army on the Tron grid is one of my favorite visuals. Genuinely (laughs) funny isn't the right word, but there's so much personality in the song when he stops to talk and is like, no, you fools, you know, we're going to kill him. And even you can't be caught unawares. And maybe my favorite line. I just love the British accent only rhyme of a shiny new era is tiptoeing near. <laughs> Terrific choice. And so then we move into the plan where Scar is taking Simba to. I wrote down the ravine, but then later they call it the gorge. But, you know, they call it the gorge. Yeah. And he puts him on a rock. He says the surprise is to die for, which is only said now by villains in movies when they're going to kill you. If somebody in real life told me something was to die for, I'm like, oh, you're going to kill me. I understand. I understand. Simba has not seen many movies, so. Yep. And then the hyenas uh, scare the wildebeest herd into stampeding down into the gorge. There's so many small moments in here that just, again, I feel like belie a subtlety other movies wouldn't have. I like how Whoopi, Goldberg, Hyena, I can never remember the hyena's names unless I'm looking at them. But the Whoopi Goldberg. Shenzi. Great. The Whoopi Goldberg hyena clearly has the most self-control, you know, because she's the one who's like, we have to wait for the signal. Yep. I like how at first when there's the stampede, you know, Zazu and Mufasa are far away and Zazu's like, oh, look, the herd is on the move because you wouldn't inherently assume something's wrong. Although Mufasa does go, that's kind of weird. Yep. And Scar plays it so well. Like my joke about to die for aside, Scar actually like you would believe his tricks. Unlike some Disney villains where it's like, well, this is the bad guy and he's doing bad guy things. Right, right. Mufasa assumes he will, however much Scar hates him, he will not cross the line of killing a child. And that's not true. And there's even there's a moment when like Mufasa is is diving into the stampede 
where Scar is watching and walking along the ridge where he will eventually kill Mufasa and his shadow starts getting longer. He's showing more and more of his evilness now. It's actually after he knocks out Zazu. Again, the, the visual language is, is unmatched. And of course, long live the king. And you see Mufasa die. I mean, you yeah. don't quite see him get trampled to death, but like he falls, he screams. It's And then, oh, this scene. This scene made me choke up. It makes me choke up every time. Yeah. Ugh. They show the corpse. You, it's Mufasa's dead face, and and the you know, we gotta go home. Uh, and the score, the emotional moment with Simba, in this, the, and it it lasts just long enough to like break your heart. Might be the saddest scene in the animated canon, or the most heartbreaking scene. I mean, Brave Little Toaster gets to me a little more, but that's again, that's that's cheating. That's a different thing. It's kind of in a similar style to when Bambi loses his mother, because you remember how in that scene it's snowing a lot. And so it's yes, it's, it's still difficult to see through in this scene. There's still all the dust in the air from the stampede. So it's still kind of clouded. The fact that they killed Bambi's mom mm-hmm. uh, in, in the previous movie is what let them get away with killing Mufasa in this. But this is. In my opinion, even more brutal. Obviously, I didn't grow up with Bambi, so I don't have the same connection to it as we talked about on that episode. But also, like, Bambi's mom dies. We don't have to see her after that. You just, you know what happened. And she was just killed by by hunters. Like, hunters hunt, that's what they do. Right. This is... Mufasa's brother straight up murdered him for the throne. And when you see Simba snuggling in the corpse's paw... Oh, my God. And then Scar walks up and his first line is Simba, what have you done? Which is just another punch in the chest. It's like a knife. Yeah. And you're like, oh, Scar, you're so evil. Such a horrible, horrible person. And of course, then he tells Simba to run away and never return because, you know, how how can you you don't want to go back and tell everybody what you did. Oh, he's, he's so bad. But it's it's very clearly established, I think, that Scar was like, I don't know if Simba's going to die in the stampede or not. The plan is to kill Mufasa. If Simba died, he definitely would not care. And I was thinking about that. He wanted to kill them both. And, right. you know, he figured he'd at least get one of them with this trick. You know, I was thinking about that. It's like, it's so obvious he doesn't care for Simba's life at all. He just wants him to go away. And I forgot because it's such a short moment that this scene actually ends with him having just a slight smile and then just saying, kill him. To the hyenas. <laughs> just ordering the death of a child in a, kid, a kid's movie, a Disney kid's movie, and the hyenas chase him. And again, we immediately switch to these crazy red and blue colors. Uh, they don't kill him, but they're like, whatever, he's never coming back. Well, and they also think he's probably going to die in the desert that he's run into. Right. And then we see Scar assuming the throne and his first immediate change is to let the hyenas also come and live in the Pride Lands. And it's a very dark, sinister moment. And then the buzzards are descending on Simba. The vultures descend on Simba! like, And these are like... Not the silly looking vultures from Jungle Book. These ones look real. 
<laughs> no, it's still shocking how dark this movie goes. Yeah, especially I think it's almost more shocking watching all these Disney movies next to each other because it really highlights how much farther this goes than any other movie from this time. And this movie really it starts with this part, but it really goes through what this sort of grief is like the grief that um, grieving that Simba goes through for his father and the guilt that he feels is a normal thing that happens to people, even when they're not guilty, which of course Simba is not. And just his whole process throughout this movie is actually a really good template. Not that I'm saying I recommend this movie to people who have you know lost a parent, <laughs> but it can it, it's actually a very good demonstration of that. It's true. I discovered this in my research today that parents and child psychologists talk about using this movie to help kids especially kind of understand grief. We know someone who had a similar experience with that for themselves. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's again, it's a very it the, the movie really speaks to something real. But I think it's so brilliant how it follows up again some of the darkest stuff in any Disney movie ever. With some of the silliest stuff in any Disney movie ever, you need, <laughs> at this moment, Timon and Pumbaa. Here they come. Bowling for buzzards. <laughs> not really sure what the purpose of their game is. They're just goofing off. I mean, it's not like they're going to eat whatever the buzzards were eating. Well, what if there was a whole movie that explained what they're what they were doing here? No, thanks. That would be necessary. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> oh, We'll talk about it, but <laughs> yeah, uh, I I actually laughed out loud at some of their jokes in this. Mo I wrote down that I did that. I didn't write down what joke it was, but I mean, it's it's funny stuff. They say straight up like that. Simba's like, these are the lessons my dad taught me. And Timon goes, maybe you need a new lesson. Yep. Simba's last act of this movie will be his competing feelings between what these guys teach him kind of his surrogate dads <laughs> and his original dad um, and and trying to combine the lessons in in a healthy way. This really is, again, like Bambi, the, the story of a of a whole lifetime. It is. Again, it's just so smart and so good. And it feels like this is a character who's been through so much. And how can you not care about that? And even though Hakuna Matata, you know, the movie doesn't really come down on the side of that lesson, you can see how like. These guys kept Simba alive, not just like saving him from the buzzards, but giving him the ability to live and right. go on after losing everything. Anyway, here's a song about farts. I feel like we have to talk about this a little bit because this is the first fart joke in a Disney movie and fart jokes have now come to define the American animated film for the past 20 years. Thanks to Shrek. It's something we've talked about in previous episodes. The fart jokes in this movie are funny, though. <laughs> well, they're very tasteful and understated. <laughs> you never have to see or hear a fart. Right. They, you, they don't even say the word. They make a point of not saying the word. I think what's so funny about this part is how the song like swells and gets so much more dramatic. <laughs> oh, the shame! <laughs> Thought of changing my name. <laughs> And this is another one of the most famous shots in the movie, you know, up there with like Rafiki lifting Simba is is the bridge walk. Yep. The bridge walk as we have the time passing moment and Simba grows up and you have the Hakuna Matata, Hakuna Matata, 
as they go along. <laughs> and then another one of my favorite jokes, a joke I thought was so subversive as a kid and honestly still amuses me, which is Zazu singing, it's a small world after all. And <laughs> Scar going, oh no, anything but that. And then they start singing lovely bunch of coconuts. And of course, before that, he's singing, nobody knows the troubles <laughs> I've seen. The Pride Lands are all gray now, right. which after we've just been in, I, they don't really have a name for the land where Timon and Pumbaa live, but it's very green and lush and beautiful. It's more of jungly than savanna, which is what the Pride Lands are like. The Pride Lands have become completely gray with Scar's leadership and Zazu is in a cage singing. And I love I love Scar singing along with the lovely bunch yes. of coconut song. And he's got the little skull. He's miming, like puppeting the song with. Oh, it's so funny. And the important part of this and a later scene uh, is to establish, as you say, the pride lines suck now. You know, it's fascism doesn't even work for the fascists. The hyenas are complaining about lack of food because they've eaten all the food. It's interesting because we don't usually see, you know, a Disney villain get to win to this degree. We don't see like what would happen if, you know, Ursula got to rule the sea or Jafar was in charge of Agrabah for more than 15 minutes. It's true. Uh, it would be bad. Because Scar gets to be in charge for however long it takes. Right. And these lions are more people than lions. But yes, it's more years. <laughs> and yeah, he's not very good at it. Nothing is in balance anymore. And the lionesses refuse to hunt. Uh, the hyenas have not even been hunting their own food is the is the implication. They're lazy. Lazy, stupid poachers. <laughs> so we're looking at the stars because the stars and light is a huge theme of this movie, obviously, starting as it does with a sunrise. And, uh, you know, Simba's like, hey, my dad taught me the stars were this. And Timon and Pumbaa laugh and go, take that, Simba's beliefs. There is another fart joke that I actually laughed at, which is. Pumba accurately saying what the stars are, balls of gas. Yeah. And Timon going, everything's gas. <laughs> it's true that this is this is one of those um, friend partnerships where Pumba is more often right. But Timon is always like, what do you think? What are you talking about? Who's the brains of this outfit? Classic Disney bit, 101 Dalmatian stuff. Always love to see it. Simba magically makes Rafiki aware that he's alive. Yeah. Like Rafiki does full on magic, which I appreciate this movie just being like, hey, Rafiki's, you know, he's the shaman. He does magic. Yeah. The score swells and Rafiki announces it is time. And you're like, oh, there's hope again. And then Timon and Pumbaa sing The Lion Sleeps Tonight, which, <laughs> yeah. OK, this this is the, this is the type of joke I like less where it's just like, hey, this is a pop culture reference. And I'm like. Yeah, I know. It's not a joke in and of itself, but... Well, it is a joke because it's a lion. Yes, there you go. I mean, reference humor had just been invented in the 90s, so... <laughs> You're so silly. I, I do feel like we were not as burnt out on it as as we are now, so I, I give it a pass. <laughs> anyway, Nala's going to eat Pumbaa, but then... Uh, Simba recognizes her. I like the scene where Pumbaa is stalking the bug and then he gets stalked by Nala. Yep. And I like how Simba recognizes La Nala because she beats him. <laughs> she pins him and he's like, wait, I recognize this butt whooping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nala. <laughs> 
And then, of course, we, uh, Simba is revealed to his friends as a king. And we have to have all that silly business going back and forth. And finally, he's like, um, I just need to talk to Nala. <laughs> just give me a minute here, guys. And we have the Can You Feel the Love Tonight song with Timon and Pumbaa kind of framing the song a little bit with a little opener that Timon sings and then the little bit they sing at the end. And this is also a very beautiful song, a very beautiful scene. And you told me that originally Timon and Pumbaa were going to sing the whole song. It's true. In one of the earlier versions of the movie, Timon and they, the directors thought it would be really funny to because they, they were trying to mix things up, right? They obviously they wanted to do it like a musical, but they wanted to put their own spin on as many things as they could. And they're like, we're going to have the love song. But what if we had the love song sung by the comic characters? Wouldn't that be great? And so they actually did a screening that way. And unbeknownst to them, Elton John went to that screening and he called up, I think, the producer, Don Hahn, and was like, no, they have ruined the entire movie by doing this. You cannot <laughs> let them do this. <laughs> and I have to agree. Obviously, I, I haven't heard this version of the song that was just them, but I think that's the fatal miscalculation that a movie that I do enjoy, we'll get to it, Princess and the Frog, I think the biggest mistake that movie makes is by having the joke character sing the love song. I think the love song, as much as we've, you know, jokingly complained in the past about the song, and this is very much the song, you have to have it. Yep. You, the love has to be real and it has to be not a joke. Otherwise, what are we doing here? Um, and in this case, of course, as I said, you know, last week on Aladdin, this uh, uh, and Whole New World, it's it's close. I don't know which I like more, but this is one of my absolute favorite love songs in a Disney movie. And I actually like the Elton John version even more. The, the version that you hear in the credits that was obviously a massive, massive hit. I, I like it even more than than the movie version, but the movie version also great. It's all good. Yep. And I do like the framing devices is just the right amount of Timon and Pumbaa, especially at the end when they're crying and our pal is doomed. Yes. And the giant tears everywhere. It's hilarious. And I like how we have this song where it's the love song, Simba and Nala coming together and really caring about each other. And you can see all that. And then they kind of fight. Yeah, because she wants him to come back. And he's like, no, no, Hakuna Matata, I can't go back. You don't know. And, you know, she's like, tell me. And he's like, I can't. And I I like how you see that it's complex. It's not just we had one dance and we kissed and now we just need to get married. <laughs> they have this argument. Simba's literally in a hammock, which is just a great, funny way to represent how much he doesn't care anymore. And it culminates with. Him, you know, running out to the stars and he actually yells at Mufasa, which is a powerful moment. Yep. He's angry at his own father. He's furious. And then as he's going through this emotional moment, Rafiki appears and is following Simba. And Simba's like, what are you doing? Leave me alone with his little Asante San, a squash banana song. And then, <laughs> uh, which is really funny. <laughs> you are a baboon and I am not. Yes, I just love this is Rafiki's main bit and it's really great. And then, of course, Rafiki says, I know who you are. You're 
Mufasa's boy, and then Simba's chasing him. Rafiki is very Yoda, for sure. You know, original episode five Yoda, where he's funny and he's pretending he's not, you know, as wise as he is and he's hitting stuff with a stick. But you know what? Great character. Do it. This ends with one of the most iconic scenes in a movie ever, just this incredible visual, which is Mufasa's face in the cloud. And I hate to interrupt this great moment, but I forgot to talk about during the beginning background section, the Kimba and the White Lion thing. So I'm going to talk about it now real quick, because this is one of the things people point to is that Kimba and the White Lion has Kimba's mother appearing in a cloud. Um, and this is one of the things people like. They ripped this off. So because I forgot to talk about it earlier, this is as good a time as I to bring it up. I recommend people who are interested in the full story here watch the video The Lion King Lie by the YouTube channel Yesterworld Entertainment. I was pointed to this as the best source for the like entire details of this controversy from the movie's release onwards. It has a lot of sources. It cites its sources in the description. It's a good resource. But the short version is there was this guy first active, you know, in the uh, early 40s named Osamu Tezuka, Japanese cartoonist, who was seen in, is sometimes referred to as the Walt Disney of Japan. He was the father of manga. Basically, his works were so influential that they created the modern manga and anime industries in Japan. Incredibly important person, probably best known in the United States for Astro Boy, uh, which is the only work of his I've really heard of or seen, not being a huge anime person myself. But again, in Japan, he is incredibly well-known, incredibly important. His influence cannot be overstated. He was also a big fan of Disney. He, he cited Walt Disney as his personal hero and especially loved Bambi. And he wanted to tell a Bambi-like story, but he wanted to set it in Africa because that was something Disney had not done. And he was very, like, upfront that that was the inspiration for it. And so he created a comic series that in the United States, the title literally translates to Jungle Emperor, and the best uh, original sort of English translation would have been Leo Jungle Emperor or Jungle Emperor Leo or Leo the Lion um, are more literal translations of the name, especially of the first cartoon series, uh, which was one of the first super influential anime series. When they localized it for the United States, they could not call it Leo the Lion because that is the copyrighted name of the MGM logo. So they decided to call it Simba the White Lion because Simba is a Swahili word for lion. But then they were like, well, we can't copyright Simba because it's just the word for lion. Let's change one letter and call it Kimba. So that is why in the United States, Jungle Emperor Leo is known as Kimba the White Lion. Because this was, again, such an influential anime series that did make its way to the States, animators who worked at Disney, who were big animation nerds, probably heard of this series probably knew about it. Many of them have said later they did, and they thought about it while working on The Lion King. There is absolutely no evidence beyond conspiracist thinking that Disney was intentionally trying to rip off Kimba the White Lion, that they intentionally took anything from it, or that that was the genesis of this. And in order to believe that that's the case, 
You have to believe that the Disney executives and animators and again, Jim Cummings, like talking in all these oral histories, all kept this frankly pointless to keep secret, which like I've read Disney War. People who have no investment. Right. And (laughs) I've read Disney War, the book where Michael Eisner let a journalist follow him around to Disney because he thought he had nothing to hide (laughs) and everyone was so honest with them. And I find it very hard to believe that they hid this, again, pointless conspiracy. There are similarities. A lot of the similarities likely come from the fact that both stories started from the premise of Bambi in Africa. Right. Definitely, again, I think probably individual animators may have taken inspiration from it. It may have been one ingredient in the mix, but the idea that they ripped off Kimba the White Lion is not true. Disney themselves did not help this case by denying it in very weird and inconsistent ways when the movie came out and these accusations started happening. And then, even worse, when a Kimba movie came out, a a Japanese movie, came out a couple years later, they blocked it from getting released in the United States, arguing that it was a ripoff of Lion King, which obviously did nothing to engender goodwill between the companies and was frankly a real awful move on Disney's part. So that's the Kimba the White Lion thing. Again, you could watch a longer video. There's no reason to believe it was ripped off. There was definitely some inspiration taken. Calm down. (laughs) You know, last week with Aladdin, we talked about Thief and the Cobbler, where it's like, okay, Disney animators literally worked on both movies around the same time. And again, the vice president of animation was like, yeah, we took some stuff from Thief and the Cobbler. Like, okay. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that they didn't say that about Kimba the White Lion is as good a proof as you need that, now nah, there's nothing there. All right, anyway, this Mufasa scene gives me chills. It's the best. And of course, Simba decides to go back, take up his responsibilities. The score swells, Rafiki cheers, you get chills again. Yep, I can hear this music in my head. <laughs> Rafiki goes and tells Nala, Timon, and Pumbaa, the king has returned. And as Simba is returning, the sun is high in the sky. Again, light being a theme of this movie, uh, a motif of this movie, this position of the sun and the stars. Um, And I like the little moment where Simba, Nala, Timon and Pumbaa are like making their preparations for war. And I like that Timon and Pumbaa, it's not even a joke when Timon says like, if this is important to you, we're with you. Because they are his true friends, even if they did, you know, encourage him to forget his previous life completely. <laughs> They're such good friends that they might be willing to put themselves in mortal peril. If you're hungry for a hunk of fat and juicy meat, eat my buddy Pumba here because he is a treat. Come on down and dine on the Stacy Swine. All you have to do is get in line. <laughs> are you aching? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. For some bacon. Yep, yep, yep. He's a big pig. Yep, yep. You could be a big pig too. Oi! close second for favorite scene i love how it comes out of nowhere it's so anachronistic there's no reason for it to be in the movie (laughs) it's so funny did you hear what katzenberg wanted it to be instead what did katzenberg want it to be he wanted them to do staying alive that's right i think i did read this somewhere what a stupid idea (laughs) 
Yeah. And this happened, by the way, because, you know, as, as we said, Sabella and Lane got to improvise a lot of dialogue. So Nathan Lane said, what do you want me to do? Dress and drag and do the hula? And then they're like, and they're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's so funny that they're like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> but you're right. It, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Speaking of coming out of nowhere, I still remember the first time I saw this movie in the theaters when Simba is looking at the Pride Lands. And of course, they look horrible. And then Nala calls out to Simba from a distance. The theater I was in had surround sound. And I literally thought somebody in the theater had said Simba <laughs> at first. There's a lot of stuff that happens here, so let's cut through it kind of quickly. Yep, 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 yep. Yep, yep, yep. The two big moments are, you know, Simba admitting that he killed Mufasa. Very dramatic, powerful moment. And then as Simba is almost killed, Scar says that actually he killed Mufasa and he has to admit it to everyone. And that triggers the big battle. Timon and Pumbaa get in on it. And then, okay, this is my least favorite scene in a movie that, again, is almost perfect. Rafiki doing the karate, I think is stupid. I don't find it funny. You think that's stupid? Oh, I think it's great. Humor is subjective. I <laughs> find it really annoying. And I don't know. I like Rafiki as the character he's been. I think I would even like this joke better if like Timon did it. Because <laughs> Timon and Pumbaa have like magical knowledge of all pop culture. Rafiki has a specific thing, whatever. It's again, tiny moment, not ruining the movie for me. It's just that there's so much I love, I almost feel like I have to call out the things I don't. Anyway, here's a pop culture reference that is very funny. Mr. Pick. <laughs> Wildly inappropriate appropriation of In the Heat of the Night, and yet very funny. 10 out of 10 from me. <laughs> and then it's all, everything's on fire now. It's very Bambi. Yep. Lightning and rain. Well, the rain hasn't started yet, but... Thunder and lightning. So I appreciate watching this movie after having seen Bambi for the first time because you can see the influences. Yeah. Scar begs for his life. He sells out the hyenas. You see what a self-serving, craven little schmuck he is in this moment. But but uh, Simba is not like you. Uh, he's not going to kill a member of his own family, even though he even says like Scar does not deserve to live, which is probably true. But Gaston style, Scar, you know, of course, betrays him. And now we have the real fight in silly slow-mo. Mm. I don't know if you saw anything about why they chose to do this. I did not find anything about why they chose to do silly slow-mo. Yeah, I mean, it's a very cool looking scene with the sparks and the fire and everything. Um, Simba manages to basically defeat Scar, throw him down, and then... The hyenas are approaching and Scar is like, ah, oh, my friends. And they're like, oh, we heard what you said. And so then Scar is killed by the hyenas in the scene they thought was too much for Beauty and the Beast, where the wolves were going to be the ones to kill Gaston. Nothing's too much for the Lion King. <laughs> it was apparently not too much for the Lion King. The hyenas eat him. And again, <laughs> like... Just like how I think they do a good job of recontextualizing how funny the hyenas jokes are in various scenes. Ed's laugh, which has been a punchline up to this point, is creepy now. Oh, yeah, it is. And then the rain does begin and it starts to put out the fire. And then we have the rejuvenation of the Pride Lands reborn in fire and water. I was thinking. 
And then Simba steps up to the rock. The score swells. We hear Mufasa say, remember, the last spoken line of the movie. And he finally lets out a powerful lion roar. Yep. This movie ends not really with a lot of dialogue. It's all emotion. It's true. And then we have the sort of a reprise of the circle of life as the circle continues after the Pride Lands are all back to normal and time has passed. And now Rafiki is presenting Simba and Nala's cub. And you get the same bump with the title again at the end. (laughs) Perfection. And again, the Bambi ending of this goes on forever, but even more powerful what an excellent movie. Yep. Good thing that they didn't ruin it with a bunch of garbage. Oh, wait, it's time for sequels, <laughs> spin-offs, remakes, rides, and reboots. I did want to just make one quick clarification. We do mostly talk about, you know, the crappy credits cover songs, even though there is, of course, the version of Can You Feel the Love Tonight by Elton John in, in the credits of this movie. We do not consider it a crappy credits cover because he does an excellent job. This is the music he wrote himself for himself to sing this version. It is not crappy. It's hard to say it's a cover and it's not crappy. No, it's the credits version, but it's not crappy. Just wanted to make that clarification on to the lot of crap. However, the first thing I wanted to mention is not crap because inspired by this movie, Hans Zimmer and... His friend Labo M and some, I forget some other people, they brought out a CD of music called Rhythm of the Pride Lands, music inspired by The Lion King. And this was a great album. And a lot of the music got reused in later spinoffs and things and sequels. But we actually had the album like just as by itself. And I always loved listening to it. It's a great album. I wish it was still available that I could find somewhere and listen to it. Awesome. This franchise, the Lion King franchise, is surpassed only by Winnie the Pooh in terms of, holy gosh, that's a lot of stuff, which is not surprising because, again, (laughs) this movie made so much money, just absurd amounts of that scratch. So, you know, there's four animated sequel films and three spinoffs of the TV show The Lion Guard and two other TV shows besides The Lion Guard and multiple remakes and shorts and a billion video games and a million. It's so we may not cover your favorite. I encourage you again. If there's something you want us to talk about, we don't hit here. That's what the mailbag episodes are for. And that is at me, mom, mouse at gmail.com. M-E-M-O-M-M-O-U-S-E at gmail.com. So I want to start with the worst one because I want to talk about something fun after this. In 2019, there was a, what is called a live action remake, but is not because there is only one frame of live action in the film. It is otherwise completely computer animated. It is also called The Lion King, and it is the worst thing that has ever happened. It is truly, in my opinion, the worst movie, or at the very least, the worst movie I have ever seen. (laughs) I despise this. It is not the least competent movie, right? Like I've seen some really awful stuff. You know, your love on a leash, your The Room, your food fight for connoisseurs of bad movies like myself, you know, that are more incompetently made. This thing had massive Disney money thrown at it, but it is 
the only movie I've seen where I feel like you almost can't even call it a movie because even in the worst direct-to-video trash that I have had to watch for this show, there's somebody who cared. There's maybe a performance you can find. There's somebody who was trying to make something. This is just the most cynical. We are doing the exact same movie again, but worse. They completely misunderstand the appeal of the first movie by doing it with photorealistic animals who they decided could only do things animals could literally do except talk and have emotions yeah. and succession. But other than that, you know, there's so many scenes you can talk about that are so horrible, whether it's, you know, oh, the famous bridge scene, but now they're just walking in a straight line, not bobbing their heads or having fun or... Simba talks to Mufasa in the clouds and it's just a regular cloud without a lion head. It is offensive. It is truly to me, this is the absolute nadir. This is the summation of everything that's awful about these Delarms, everything that is awful about Bob Iger's miserable, joyless, brown and gray era of Disney where there's absolutely zero originality, zero attempt to make a movie, zero attempt to make art, the ultimate Katzenberging of cinema, <laughs> where it's just get a bunch of famous people to do a story you've literally already seen beat for beat, but it's more expensive, and that means it'll be better. I hate the 2019 Lion King with a passion bordering on madness. The fact that Barry Jenkins, one of the most exciting art house directors working today is doing a prequel for this as his next movie is an indictment of American cinema. I wish that <laughs> this may seem extreme, but I think everyone involved in this production should be dead to paraphrase Norm MacDonald. <laughs> you can absolutely keep all of it into the garbage 2019 Lion King movie. And yet, and yet it made over one and a half billion dollars. It's so crazy. I don't understand. Pigs lining up for slop from the trough because the most any movie can aspire to is reminding you of a movie that already exists. Climate change is good. End humanity. We made the <laughs> Lion King again. I did not watch the whole thing of this movie, but I watched a few scenes from it and... Every image, I, still image I've seen from it is just so brown and boring looking and dull. And I did watch just a little bit of it just to just to compare. And it's just like, as you said, all it does is remind you of the original far better version. And I don't want them to be just doing things animals can do and not, you know, the fun movements that they do in the original movie. All I can do when watching The Lion King every single moment, because so much of it is shot for shot, is wish I was watching the original animated movie from 94. With color and personality and emotions. Yeah. And style and a reason to exist. Yeah. The Timon and Pumbaa stuff is maybe the most dire because it's just the least fun. Also, they have the, the the voice actors singing and they can't sing. No. They should have replaced them with actual singers. For Timon and Pumbaa, of course, you're referring right, to. Right, for Timon yeah. and Pumbaa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen, not known singers. No, they are not on key. No. 
That did, however, lead to something you've watched and I'd be interested in hearing from you about, which is, uh, I believe it's called Black is King. Yep, Beyonce's Black is King and um, the companion album is called The Lion King, The Gift. Um, This is from 2020. And I had heard the music previously because, you know, your dad, he's always pulling up new albums and stuff to listen to. And so we'd listen to that one a good bit. Um, and I knew it was inspired by the Lion King, but I didn't really get how it went with it. Other than, of course, there's some quoted lines from the 2019 movie in it. But then we watched Blackest King. Where they, it's basically like a movie length music video almost. I think of it as analogous to like Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah. You know, other albums turned into movies. I feel like this is becoming more of a thing. Obviously, Beyonce herself did it previously with Lemonade. It's a really, it's a very uh, beautiful movie. Uh, we were joking that the reason why there's no colors in the 2019 Delarm is because they had to save all of them for Black is King. Beyonce used all the colors <laughs> <laughs> and all the costumes and all the makeup. And uh, the music is very good and it does kind of tell a, a basic Lion King story. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's a very loose story because, as you said, it's 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 a it's like a music video where the story is not the main thing. It's using the Lion King story of being exiled and then returning uh, to be an allegory for the experience of the African diaspora. Yep, it's on Disney Plus so you can watch it. And, you know, it's also great to just like Pop it on when you don't need to pay a ton of attention to it, right? You can just yeah. listen to it. Let let the visuals kind of wash over you. Possibly the most famous spinoff of this, and I believe the most successful, is the long-running Lion King Broadway musical. Yes, and that is something I would love to see someday. If you're going to do a live-action Lion King, you should do this mm-hmm. with the amazing... Julie Taymor designed costumes that, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, reading Disney War like Eisner and Katzenberg, Eisner especially, who is more involved with the Broadway musicals, like no way does this work. You know, we're not working with Howard Ashman on this one, obviously, who was the Broadway musical guy. How can you translate animals to screen? These costumes are so bad. They're so stupid. This is going to be a failure. I can't believe we committed to this. Uh, And then, of course, it was enormously successful, beloved. Well, yeah. As you say, it looks amazing. Uh, As a kid, I had I too have never seen this musical because we don't have that kind of money. But uh, as a kid, I assume you remember you, you may have. I can't remember who gave it to me, but I had a book that was telling the story of the musical and had all the pictures of these costumes. And I just loved it. Good stuff. It's the musical that's so good and so interesting Mm -hmm. and took the story or at least the visuals in such a different direction that now, you know, some people talk about how that kind of like ruined Broadway because now, you know, every Disney musical has to have an equivalent Broadway show that's not as creative and a lot of other Broadway shows are just based on movies. Well, they had to get so creative to do The Lion King. Right. And when I first heard about The Lion King being turned into a Broadway musical, I was like, no way. What are you even thinking? Which is, you know, what a lot of people's response was. But um, Julie Taymor just came up with these brilliant ideas and she brought, you know, uh, her sketches of her costume ideas and a little model of the leaping gazelles and, you know, talked through it. And they were like, 
wow, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like the the reason, you know, again, people talk about it like hurting Broadway is because it led to stuff like the Shrek musical or I've just sent you the absolutely dire Madagascar the musical, which came to my hometown earlier this year. Ah, fun. Which is just horrific. <laughs> yeah, that's not the same. <laughs> there was a bunch of direct video happenings. So there's what's referred to as the original Lion King trilogy, which is incredibly depressing, which is the Lion King 2 Simba's Pride, which uh, basically the idea was, well, if the first one's Hamlet, this one will be Romeo and Juliet as Simba's daughter falls in love with Scar's son. And then Michael Eisner, in a rare moment of being right, came in and was like, it cannot be Scar's son. We are not having them be that closely related. <laughs> so it's instead a boy who was raised as though Scar was his father. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the fact that it's supposedly based on a different Shakespeare play, which is kind of an interesting way to do it. Actually watching the thing, it's just the classic direct-to-video sequel thing of, oh, it's the exact same movie again. Dad sent us today the Rafiki song, which makes him very mad because it is based around the Swahili word upendi, except that's not a Swahili word. It's a completely butchered. Yeah, upendi is the pronunciation that that upsets him so bad because <laughs> it's not upendi, it's upendo, or um, where he grew up, it's mapendo. Because there's many different dialects of Swahili, you know, just like there's multiple dialects of English. So... Uh, but yes, so it's it's very stupid. But like even watching that song, you're like, oh, this is literally like it starts in a field. They're talking to Rafiki under the stars. You're like, oh, this is just what Rafiki was doing in the first movie. It at least had some budget and it was animated by uh, Walt Disney Animation Australia, which we talked about last week is probably the better outsource studio. So it looks pretty good, especially compared to like what I was watching last week for Aladdin. Uh, but it's bad. Don't watch it. <laughs> then there was the Lion King one and a half inexplicably alternately known as the Lion King three Hakuna Matata. <laughs> I don't remember ever seeing Lion King two as a kid. Maybe as I and I did wouldn't surprise me. We definitely watched Lion King one and a half a few times. I even remember watching it with friends. One time we were having a sleepover at the synagogue and we watched it there for some reason. Weird memory in my head. <laughs> and of course, the premise of The Lion King one and a half is let's base it on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is the strange uh, meta narrative play that is about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the two very small side characters in Hamlet who Timon and Pumbaa are roughly analogous to. So let's do that, but with Timon and Pumbaa, where this sequel starts before the plot of The Lion King, establishes where Timon and Pumbaa comes from, how they became friends, uh, then shows the movie from their perspective, and then shows a little bit of after the movie. And I have to say, so I watched this entire thing today. I was expecting to hate it. I was like, what a <laughs> stupid idea. What an annoying thing. Let me back up a moment. There were two TV shows. One of them was The Lion Guard, which has its own separate canon and takes place during a montage in The Lion King 2 
featuring a <laughs> second child who is of Simba and Nala as the main character who's never mentioned in Lion King 2. <laughs> I got to tell you, you know, there was so much research to do for this one. My brain started feeling like mush. I was trying to understand the continuity of the Lion Guard. Could not follow it. Could not understand <laughs> how it connected to everything else. Uh, apparently, like, scars back somehow. I, I don't understand it in the slightest, but I don't know how he can be back. He got totally chomped. <laughs> He's pretty dead. Anyway, the Lion Guard like has its fans. It is by all accounts a good show. If you have small children, the premise for that was what if the Avengers met the Lion King? Whatever. I, it's some it's for somebody out there. It's it's not for me. <laughs> but the other TV show uh, that actually came out right after the Lion King movie was called Timon and Pumbaa. And I did watch some of this also on Disney Plus. The premise for this TV show, Gary Kreisel, who was the president of Walt Disney Television Animation at the time, said that Timon and Pumbaa are the best new comedy team to come on the scene for a long time. And they have the potential to be just as classic as Abbott and Costello, Hope and Crosby, Martin and Lewis and Nichols and May. Which is insane. <laughs> but based on that premise... The idea of the show is that it's more like those characters. You know, it's more like your Abbott and Costello, your Laurel and Hardy, where it's Timon and Pumbaa in different situations, totally different climates, uh, interacting with totally different animals, no continuity at all. According to one of the show's writers, Kevin Campbell, at the beginning of the series, he and one of the other writers, Bob's Ganaway, made a giant list of puns using country names <laughs> to open the doors on how many places they could go. After figuring out which funny animal or obstacle Timon and Pupa would face, they used a Which Animals Live Where Atlas reference book to find where in the world an episode could take place and then checked the list of country puns. And that's how they wrote <laughs> episodes. Oh, wow. So I watched some of this and uh, I did not enjoy it. I specifically watched the episodes where Nathan Lane is doing the voice of, po of Timon, rather, which is only for like half the first season, <laughs> because why would I not want to see Nathan Lane doing it? I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting idea for the show. Again, they're like trying something different. They have a specific take, even if the take is just puns. But what I don't like about it is that, again, inspired by like your Laurel and Hardy, your Abbott and Costello, where they're always fighting. Yeah, they don't get along and they're constantly fighting with each other. And like Timon is scamming Pumbaa, who's much stupider. <laughs> and I don't like that because I think what's fun about Timon and Pumbaa is that they are good friends. They like each other a lot. They are like joined at the hip and they're very funny and they are reacting to a very serious world and a very serious movie around them. Mm -hmm. Drawing on that, that's why I didn't like that TV series. Coming back to Lion King one and a half, I think they understand the characters much better because it is them being friends, liking each other, and reacting to the movie in funny ways. I think, uh, so the truth is, to be honest, I liked this. I liked watching it again. It has some really awful stuff. It is a very stupid movie. <laughs> but I was having fun more, th and again, it should be noted that my brain had turned to sludge. But I was having fun more often than not. I especially like 
the more like silliness and the more meta they get because the construct for the movie is they are MST3King their own film. Like it constantly <laughs> cuts back to them in black silhouette in the theater chairs. Yeah. And there's like a running gag where every time there's a dangerous action scene, you know, where it seems like something's building to something, they either cut to commercial or Pumbaa sits on the remote and it switches <laughs> to a live action different movie or at one point Pumbaa pauses to make popcorn and we're just sitting there with Timon like waiting as we hear Pumbaa making popcorn in the background. <laughs> All that stuff works for me. All the stuff where they're commenting on it and they do a lot of like silly kind of forest gumping of the first movie where it's like, oh, the reason that everyone bowed in the opening sequence was because Pumbaa was in the back and he farted and everyone was like, falling over or <laughs> the reason that all the animals fell down at the end of just can't wait to be king was because Timon knocked them down. Uh, there's a really funny sequence where they're trying to find a home. And so they find like they're hanging out at the place where that song's taking place and they knock over the animals. Yeah. Then they're like, Oh, how about this place? And it turns out to be scars layer and it explodes around them. as <laughs> They're doing that song. They hang out in the elephant graveyard, all that stuff. Where I don't like this movie is when they try to have a story and new characters and there's a bunch of stuff with Timon's family, which even though the great Julie Kavner plays his mom, it really can't be saved. But yeah, I honestly would say if you must watch a Lion King spinoff, this is the one I guess I recommend it for that. Uh, Lion King one and a half, truly shocked how well it hold up, held up. The only other thing I have to talk about, and I assume you have plenty of park goodness for us, is again, there were a billion video games, but the one we had was Timon and Pumbaa's Jungle Games. Did you even remember this? I was trying to remember if you guys had any of these games. Um, you had so many and you didn't play all of them all the time, you know? So I got to tell you, I watched a video of this and it was that dark nostalgia, right? Whereas like I vaguely remembered right. a Timon and Pumbaa game. And as soon as I watched this, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the one. I remember all this. This game is very bad. <laughs> this game is just you play a few super short, super easy mini games and then you get a party thrown for you. The <laughs> video I watched, which is a complete playthrough, right? Literally shows everything that's in the game, lasts for 16 minutes and 30 seconds. So what I remember from this was uh, that we would just watch the opening cutscene over and over again mm -hmm. as kids, or at least I would. I don't know if Isaiah would remember this at all. It came out in 95. That is the only Lion King game we ever had. I know there are others much more popular, much more famous, and we're not talking about them. At the parks, um, most of the specific Lion King related attractions are to be found at uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom at Walt Disney World, as makes sense. Um, they've got a live stage musical there called Festival of the Lion King, which is not the Lion King Broadway musical. It's a different musical of some sort. The only characters who were ever available for meet and greets are Timon and Rafiki because they're the only ones who are not quadrupeds. <laughs> and so with that, we come to the end of our episode. Normally we ask each other two questions. There's no real reason to ask whether or not we recommend this movie. We obviously both do. But do you have any final thoughts? And would you show this to a child? I would definitely show it to a child, even though it's got some scary moments. 
I feel like the stuff that's the most disturbing and scary is going to kind of go over a child's head for a while, right? Right. I don't know if you remember ever being scared of this movie. No, I was not. It's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. You can enjoy it at multiple levels. (laughs) The older you get, the more you're going to see and understand. Just don't watch any uh, imitations. (laughs) (laughs) Except no substitutes. Exactly. That's the word. Yeah, I would show this to a kid. I mean, you know your own kid better than we do. So probably not the youngest of young kids, but uh, certainly again, I watched this as a child and I was scared of everything and this didn't bother me. Probably because it's sad, not scary. Right. I'll gaze into the cold abyss of death. I just don't want a big octopus woman to hurt me. (laughs) I love this movie. I think it is very close to absolute perfection. It is one of those movies where it's like, you know, we come through the Bronze Era and we're talking about Katzenberg and all the cynical, awful stuff this led to, including that remake. And... You're like, should Disney have ever existed? Like, do I like Disney at all anymore? Is the whole project (laughs) just cursed? And you see something like this and it honestly kind of makes it all worth it. This is a true piece of movie magic. It is a film I'll be watching for the rest of my life. It holds a very special place in my heart. Now, we're supposed to talk about Pocahontas next week, but Pocahontas is sucks. So what if instead we did our second bonus episode? This was the one you picked, Mom. Would you like to share what it is? I think it's a movie people will be very excited for us to cover. (laughs) It is 1995's A Goofy Movie. Yes, indeed. In case you thought we were done with weird direct-to-video spinoff stuff, (laughs) now we get to take it Head on with the spinoff of a TV show of a short character. Yep. Now, Mom, you picked this movie. What do you think of this movie? I think this movie is a great first date movie. What? What? what, what? <laughs> you wouldn't exist without it. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> so until next time for a movie that I would not exist without about Goofy and his son going to a concert <laughs> that I genuinely am excited to talk about. I'm me. And I'm mom. And can we get a dad status? <laughs> Mufasa dead. It all started with a mess. Goodbye, everybody. Uh